You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Well, good morning. That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? I said it in the first service, it always moves me. Back in the Jesus movement, when I came to Christ, and, and a few let us have our own music with guitars and drums and, and love song. We liked them because they sang like the Beatles, but they sang about Jesus, and Daryl Mansfield did the blues with Jesus. I had no idea what God would release in church music with the stuff that we're singing now. It's so worshipful. And um, I'm glad the Jesus movement came because the music in heaven got a lot better. (laughs) Personal opinion. And I had the fang marks on my back to prove it. So Um, anyway, thanks for having me. It's, uh, It's a great privilege to be with you for these weeks of Christmas, where we're talking about the, the Incarnation. Uh, this morning, I'm going to look at an ancient Christmas song, Psalm 113. Psalm 113 is where we'll be in our Father's Word this morning, Psalm 113. And it is an amazing Christmas song. It was, uh, it's always been a song of the people of faith in the Old Testament and What we're going to discover is that they were singing about Christmas, and they didn't even know it. One of the great sentences that I love about true faith and that you you all here get all the time is that grace changes everything. And I know you love this phrase around this dear church. It is absolutely true. Here's what I want you to understand, and the announcement about the, uh, the ladies' Bible study couldn't have been any better. Um, it's not only true that grace changes everything, it's also true that grace has never changed. Grace changes everything, and grace has never changed. Here's what I want you to know. The grace that we experience in the New Testament does not mean that God suddenly changed. Grace has always been God's one and only way of relating to his creation and to the focus of his creation, women and men and boys and girls. We turn to this Christmas psalm from the Old Testament that may help you understand that it it isn't true that the God of the Old Testament is a God of law and wrath, and the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace. It didn't happen that way. It's not like God said, all right, angels, we tried this law thing. It's not working too well. Maybe we picked the wrong people. You ever read, let me give you the theme of the Old Testament in one sentence. The ever-loving, never-failing God in relationship with his never-loving, ever-failing people. 
That's the way he always had a plan. And it isn't true that they said, what are we going to do? And God the Father went to Jesus and said, hey, got a tough assignment for you. These people are so screwed up. You're going to have to go die for them. Really? Yeah. It's, just, it's the only, no, it's never been that way. It's all he ever had planned. That the God who created us loves us so much that he wants to have a relationship with us. And that's good news. The good news is that Christ died for our sins and arose. And when we believe in him, we receive not only eternal life that is quantitative. We get to go to heaven when we die, which is a wonderful thing. It's also qualitative. We get to live a life that nobody else gets to live. A life explained only by the presence of God in our life. So the event that we celebrate as, at Christmas, the Incarnation, is the central event of history from God's perspective. The entire whole Old Testament is looking forward to it. The entire New Testament is looking back at it as the rescue of not only humanity, but creation. And it is true that the word incarnation does not appear in Scripture, but the infleshing idea of God uh, does appear, and it is predicted, announced, ex reported, explained, and celebrated from Genesis to Revelation. At the moment, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Word, John 1, 1, and we'll be looking at John 1 next week, a person to trust for Christmas, took on himself humanity and became flesh. God initiated his only ever plan to rescue you and me from sin and death. The life of the Lord Jesus does not begin, did not begin as the life of all other persons at the moment of his physical birth. He came to earth from an eternal pre-existence, already being fully God, and he came for a specific reason to fulfill a specific mission, and that is to rescue us. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus is not the little brother of the Godhead. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ created everything that is created, and without him, nothing was created. The imagery of that, of that praise song in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that they sang around campfires in the early church, is that Jesus Christ himself, through his power, holds the molecules of the universe together. That is our God. As you might imagine, not only did God specifically predict this occasion through the narrative literature Genesis 3, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, and his prophets, Isaiah 9, 6, 7, 14, Isaiah 53. But he also hinted at the wonder of the incarnation through the songs of his people, the Psalms. One of the most remarkable of these is Psalm 113. So the first 17 books of the Old Testament are the historical books. Everything that happens, so this will help you, if you're reading through the Bible and you get somewhere and you go, didn't I just read that? I thought I just read that. Psalm, uh, in the first 17, the historical books, everything that happens in the Old Testament happens in those first 17 books. 
Nothing new happens after that. At the end, the last 17 books of the Old Testament are the prophetical books, and that's when the prophets are giving message to specific generations of people living back during those 17 historical books. But the wisdom literature, the five books in the middle, they are expressing the heart of the people, the experiences of God's people, as they are relating to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this one section, in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, is a collection called the Egyptian Hillel. The Egyptian Hillel was when they, what they would sing at their festivals, at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. And it was praise for the great, they called it the Egyptian Hillel because it was the praise for the great rescue of Israel from Egypt. In the same way, in a few minutes, we are going to remember the great rescue of us by Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what they would do. And then 18 through uh, Psalm 118 through on was called the Great Hillel. But this Psalm 113, now think about this, was traditionally, for hundreds of years, it was the song that they would sing just before the Passover dinner. This is what, when the families gathered together, this is what they would read or what they would sing. We don't know that enough about it to know what they did. But this would be the last thing on their minds before they celebrated the great deliverance of the people from Egypt. And it hinted at the great deliverance, the wonder of our God in the incarnation. In fact, we're going to see that when Mary, uh, it's announced to Mary that she would birth Messiah, she would take language right out of this psalm. When Paul is talking about how it is that God humbled himself, he would take language right out of this psalm. It's always been God's one and only plan. Grace changes everything, but grace has never changed. So when these devout families were singing the sweet phrases of Psalm 113 before the Passover dinner, remembering the great deliverance, they were anticipating something about their God that they couldn't fully understand yet, but we can see in all of its glory. So let me read the psalm first, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. Psalm 113, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It's my favorite version to reading from the Old Testament because it keeps the rhythm and the pace of the Hebrew and I, and I just love the way it reads. Not the King James Version, because I don't know how to talk like that. But, but this one I can read. Uh, praise the Lord. Close your eyes and think of generation after generation after generation of devout Hebrews singing this before the Passover dinner. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the earth? the heavens that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So what he does in the very beginning, he praises the Lord and he gives us the two causes. The two causes are that God is exalted and God humbles himself. God is exalted and God humbles himself. Look at verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its going down, till the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. This is called the transcendence of our God. He is the God of God. He is the ruler of rulers. But then he goes to what we call in theology the imminence of God, the nearness of God. What sets the God of the Bible apart from all other so-called gods? He dwells on high who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the earth and in the heavens. Two reasons to praise the God. To praise God, he is transcendent, but he has humbled himself. I want us to look in great detail at the Hebrew. I'm not going to put the Hebrew word up there because it's been 40 years since seminary. I can't read it anymore, but I can read what it means. Two causes for praise. He, he stoops, he condescends, or comes down to intervene graciously in human affairs. He humbles himself. It's in the middle voice. The only person who could humble God is God. We can be humbled by circumstances, can't we? I can be humbled a lot by saying things I shouldn't say. Only he can humble himself. Why did he humble himself? He humbled himself for one reason and one reason only, to see all. It says he humbles himself to behold. And that word behold in Hebrew is so rich. That's why you're going to find that no matter what translation you have, they might have a different word there. Whenever you get 10 or 15 different translations and they have a different word every time, it's because the translators are struggling with getting the glory of the word into one English word. Here's what it means. To look at. To inspect. To consider to regard, to look after, 
to learn about, to observe, to give attention to, to discern. And he says, the things that are in the heaven and in the earth. Well, God doesn't need to humble himself to observe and to understand the things in heaven and earth. He created those. God doesn't need a lesson in physics. He made the stars. He's not, he's not humbling himself to behold. This is what this means. He's humbling himself to behold the earth and the heavens, not from above the heavens down, but from the earth up. He humbled himself to observe, to inspect, to look after, to learn what it is like, what it feels like, how does it hurt, what brings joy, what brings tears from our perspective. He humbled himself so that he could see life the way we see life. He is the transcendent God who came near. He came to earth so that he could observe life from the ground up. He walked with people who were in arguments. He stood next to deathbeds. He is fully God and fully man. He was feeling what we feel when we say goodbye to a friend. He was feeling what we feel when our trust is violated. There's nothing worse than having to do something and somebody is guiding you who doesn't understand what, it's, what you're going through. I have a picture here of a forest fire. For eight years of my youth, I was a, a fireman for the U.S. Forest Service on a crew called the Fulton Hotshots. And one of the things that used to drive me nuts, all of us, was there'd be some person in a helicopter who had never been on a fire line in their life. And they would be saying, well, here's what we think you ought to do. You ought to put the line in right there. You go right over there. There's a road right there. You can backfire that road. Get over there. Let's do that. Let's do this. This is from their perspective. It looks so simple. This is from our perspective. It was hot. It was scary. The fire didn't do what this guy thought it might do. I remember once we were in, up near Hume Lake on the Kings Canyon, and uh, there was a fire, and we were at a heliport. We were ready to go. Go back to the other one. Guy's looking at the fire, and he said, well, there's fire down there. And we, and we were saying to him, please let us go. Please let us go. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We can catch this fire. 
Well, I got a lot of things to think about. Got to get this, got to get this, got logistics support. Let us go. Let us go. They flew us over at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And now go to the next picture. That's what we did. We didn't catch that fire. We ran from it all day long. Here's what I want you to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the God in the helicopter giving you instructions from the perspective of somebody who does not know what it feels like to be you on the ground living life the way life is lived by human beings. He is the God who humbled himself. He goes on and he gives us two illustrations that are illustrations from, they're extreme illustrations. Um, he exalts the poor and the needy and he cares for the barren woman. Um, the, the poor and the needy have always been close to his heart. It's one of the big themes of scripture. Uh, he, the poor and the needy. They have a God who lived poor and needy. Last year we went to Israel and we were at Nazareth and Nazareth is, Jesus, excuse me for, it's kind of a dump. And right next to Nazareth is this huge Roman city with everything awesome in it. But it had a lot of poor people. And I, and I remember walking along and there were, there were just all these little stalls in this great, big um, Roman city right next to uh, Nazareth. And I said to Dr. Ron Allen, who was leading the group, and I said, what are all these? And he said, those are the houses of prostitution. And it just got me. I thought, man, this is where Jesus hung out. He was the one standing outside those doors saying to those ladies, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I, I, I can love you. That's our God. He is the God of the poor and needy. Then he says the barren woman. It's interesting the way he puts it here. Uh, the psalmist. Uh, well, he raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. Sounds like Ephesians, doesn't it? that we as poor and needy spiritually people have been seated in the high places with Jesus Christ. That's what he, but the parent, barren woman, um, notice what he says there. He doesn't say, I will give her children. He did say that to Hannah and to others. But he said he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children, like a joyful mother of woman. In that culture, the person who was most left out, the person who had the saddest future, the person whose life was most at risk would probably today be some poor lady, you know, pushing that Albertson's cart somewhere, was the barren woman because people died young. She had nobody to take care of her. She was all alone in the world. Everybody else was taking care of everybody else, of other people. 
And he says, this is the kind of God we have. He takes these two extremes. And he says, this is the God who humbles himself so that he knows how that barren woman feels. And he is right there with her so that she can experience life like someone who had a house full of children. And then he finishes with praise the Lord. Here is the Christmas question from Psalm 113. Who is like our God? And here's the answer. No one. Our God comes near. Our God comes near. Look on over to Luke chapter 1, and we would just see how this resonates with the writers of the New Testament. First, Mary herself, Luke chapter 1, when the angel announces to her, you're going to birth Messiah. I've been a preacher 40 years. You know, how many, I can't even count the number of times I forget the order of the books of the Bible. <laughs> number of times I said, man, I wish I'd have gone to Awana. But <laughs> I wasn't interested in Awana. I was doing other things. When Luke chapter 1. I'm all the way in Ephesians going, where is Luke? So if you feel bad about not finding your place in the Bible, you can think about me. It's even worse. The Song of Mary, verse 46. Thinking about Psalm 113. This song that was being recited at least every Passover for generations of Jewish people. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowliest state of his maidservant. This is a turtle dove offerer. People come, I'm going to come, bringing my offering, bringing my Christmas offering. Here's it. What do you got? I got these two little doves here because I don't have any money. Man. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Turn on over now to the right of your Bible to the book of Philippians. When Paul is explaining how Jesus Christ volunteered for this assignment and what it involved. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or unfair to be equal with God or something that he had to hang on to. But, and here we are, it's right out of, of Psalm 113, but made himself 
of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. In his incarnation, Christ was fully God and fully man. In his emptying, he emptied himself of retaining and exploiting his status in the Godhead to take on humanity in order to be our God. The main idea, grace changes everything, but grace has never changed. We serve the God who came near. The baby born in Bethlehem was God in the flesh. God in the flesh who volunteered to submit to the eternal plan of God, who wanted to learn more about what life looked like and felt like from the ground up. The psalmist asks the question, who is like our God who dwells on high? The answer is, no one for the Lord our God is the God who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth, to look at life from my perspective. That's always been his one and only plan. The jarring event of history, how it actually happened was the incarnation of the Son of God. We celebrate at Christmas, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah of Israel, Lord of creation, Lord of the church, Savior of the world. When I feel helpless and hopeless, and I'm just glad that you don't have to read my journal during Christmas, because you'd probably say, I don't know if this guy had a preacher or not, Lord. I think about the birth of Jesus, and I praise God that he came to earth to give me hope. See, God didn't take a hard turn from law and wrath to grace and mercy when Jesus was born. Everything we read about the person and works of Jesus Christ is the exact image of the God of the Old Testament, and it's always been true about the God of the Old Testament. Psalm 113 states, he's always been the God who stoops to be with, understand, and minister to his people. As I've mentioned, and I'm, I'm sorry, as I've meditated, and I did this this morning in my journal, there are three passages of scripture that I want to take you to that will maybe help you a little bit this Christmas time. That's what I want to do. I, I want you to, you and me, to be able to celebrate Christmas. And so, Christmas is a wonderful time that tends to highlight pain a little bit. That there are people in this room. You're facing your very first Christmas without a loved one. Jesus faced a lot of very first things without a loved one. He's not saying, well, come on there. You know I'm God. Take care. Do you even know Romans 8, 28. He is weeping with you. He hates it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I want you to think about prayer and the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 14 through 16. Always reminds me, I, I pastored a very traditional church in the Midwest for three years, so I'm this Jesus movement crazy in this traditional Midwest church. It was like, you talk about Clash of the Titans. I remember once we had a, a, like a dinner thing going on and I was invited and it said, it said, dress is casual. And I thought, I'm ready. You know what it means in the Midwest? Sport coat and tie, not a suit. So I went walking in, you could just see them all going, the disappointment, everybody going, oh, we have such a lousy pastor. I can remember we had these Wednesday night Bible uh, prayer times. Prayer times. It's Wednesday night prayer. And I would teach for 45 minutes. And we would pray for three. And I remember thinking, okay. And then I would say, what are your prayer requests? And it made me so sad that literally over 80% of them were unspoken. And I go, okay. Yep, unspoken. I don't mean to disparage these people. I'm just thinking in light of Hebrews 4. So I would pray, literally have a lot of unspoken stuff here. <laughs> Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who, but was in all points tempted, double meaning, trialed, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Christmas for Judy and me, my wife, over the last seven years has been such a deep time of need. Divorce is the gift that keeps on giving. And it just gives big bags of pain during Christmas. And when I think about these grandchildren and all the massive Christmas with two families. I, I, I can't take it. And if I was praying to a God who said, get it together, Ed. Don't tell people you can't take this. I, I don't know what I'd do. He knows exactly how it feels to be my grandchildren. When we pray, we pray to the God who showed up as a helpless baby, who couldn't feed himself or change his own diapers. He lived the life of a little boy in a village where other children were surely mean to him. I would suspect he was bullied. He had colds, <coughs> bronchitis. Thank you, Jesus. 
fevers, diarrhea. He laughed with his friends. He cried over injustice. He paid special attention to the overlooked and the overwhelmed of his world. He was misunderstood by his own family. He was rejected by his culture. He was double-crossed by a man he would look in the eye and call friend when he double-crossed him. He was abandoned by those who promised they would never abandon him. He was denied by the leader of his little loyal band of followers. He said goodbye to his mother from a cruel Roman cross, and he died with spit on his face. That's the God I pray to. And he never says, I don't get it. Another passage, Hebrews on over in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. See, also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said of him, you are my son. Um, and then we go down to verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Wow. Someone said, how did God learn? And I can give you the precise theological answer to that. I have no idea. <laughs> All I know is that God was not happy not knowing what it felt like to be at Underwood. So he came to earth and he learned. Now I would like for you to think about the way he did it and if we could do the same thing with one another. When we disagree when somebody's hurt us, when somebody says something that we don't understand, wouldn't it really help us if we would try to learn what it feels like to be them? If we could apply Hebrews 5.8 to our churches, I would suspect that our church fights would diminish a lot, wouldn't they? What I find is some of the people that I'm most angry at when I hear their story, I tend to love them the most. The other thing, and this is just my advertisement for spiritually single women, it's uh, my Judy's special ministry because she uh, grew up in a, her dad died and she was raised by a single mom. It's been her ministry for 30 years. I would just encourage you as a church to give populations seats at the table so you could learn from them. Things you never think about. The number of decisions we used to make at Church of the Open Door before I got to know these dear ladies, and I would go, yeah, that'd be fine. And then once I got to know these ladies, I would go, whoa, 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 whoa. It didn't work for a spiritual single woman. Things you never think about. I asked them once, what's the hardest thing about church for you? And they said, well, every time you have a potluck, you have even number of chairs around the table. Yeah? And they go, okay. 
Which table do I mess up? Galatians 4.4, 4, you know this well. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. I want you to think about everything that God knows about you. And that he is the exalted God above the heavens who humbles himself. He knows exactly what you're feeling. He knows exactly what your fears are. He knows what your doubts are. He knows what you want to happen. He knows what's happening that you didn't want to happen. He knows every skeleton in your closet. He knows every heartache in your life. He knows every heartache in your children's lives, in your grandchildren's lives. And you're praying to him. And here's what I want you to know. He will show up right on time. You think about the children of Israel while they were in slavery. They begged God for a rescuer for years and years and years in Egypt. And then suddenly, in a day, Moses showed up. You think about the, the people of the New Testament times. 400 silent years they didn't hear from God. They begged, 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 begged for Messiah. He showed up right on time. God does time. Whenever anything is happening to me today, I know that it's right on time. Even though I protested greatly on the plane yesterday, God, I'm losing my voice. The timing's all wrong. Nothing in life happens that the God of the Bible, the ruler of the universe, who knows my name. I love that old uh, uh, black spiritual. The ruler of the universe knows my name. Nothing he isn't aware of or doesn't understand. He has the capacity to look at my eye, to look at life with my eyes. But he's also the one looking at my life through the lens of eternal perspective. And I don't know what timing is doing to your life right now. It might have you totally wigged out. Here's what helps me. One of the most difficult things Judy and I ever went through. We had a church in Oregon that we loved. We planted the church. We grew the church. That's where I first met Bruce McNichol. He helped me. Uh, we got to know each other well. He would come through. He and Janet would come through every couple of years. And I used to stand in a pulpit much like this and say to all the people there, I love this place. I'm going to raise my grandchildren here. And it didn't happen. It all fell apart. In two weeks, we were leaving. And so we're standing in our living room of this house we loved on the banks of the North Umpqua River, getting them ready to move to La La Land. And it was good. I mean, Church of the Open Door has been my life work. I love it there, but I didn't know that then. And so here we are. House is empty. There's a van out there. Our life is in the van, in boxes. My kids are in tears. My son's at West Point. Besides, he's not going to walk with God if that's the way the church is going to treat his dad. It's all falling apart. And here's the thought God gave me. I looked at Judy and I held her hands in mine in that kitchen and I said, you know the day that we came here and we were so euphoric, it seemed like this was our life ministry and it was all going to be perfect. That same God knew this day was coming and he can take care of us and he can take care of you even this Christmas. He loves you more than you'll ever know.
He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows more about the people than you know about them. Here's what he wants you to, to hear from him. I can take care of you. I got this. That's why I came. That's why I came. Who is like our God? Answer, nobody. Father, I thank you for these dear, dear people at Open Door Fellowship who are so open to your word and so want to walk with you. I pray that Psalm 113 could meet them in the places of pain and even in the places of joy this Christmas and that we would constantly remember that the transcendent God of the universe has come near because he wants to know what it's like to be us. Help us to trust him more, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen.